0: If you're using one of those Pew Bibles, you'll find 2 Corinthians chapter 8 on page 1146. And so, a Bible open, something to write with, and something to write on, and you're going to be in good shape today. You know, uh, one ingredient can make or break a dish. Just one. If you ever been at a restaurant, they brought you your fountain drink, and you took a big slurp of it, only to realize that there was no syrup in it, and you suddenly realized, "Ah, I think I just drank seltzer water. Is there anything more disgusting than that? I submit there is not. Seltzer water? Gross. Accidentally, it doesn't matter what flavor you put in it, you're just going to have flavored gross at the end of it. So, I'll be glad to pray with you after the service if you need deliverance from your affinity for seltzer water. Um, It's a very localized affinity. Uh, But one ingredient can absolutely make or break a dish, whether it's a soda or a cake or pasta. You get one thing wrong, you leave one thing out. It may look right, but it sure isn't going to taste right. It's just not the same thing. That's the way it is with Christian character as well. You know, it's possible to excel as a follower of Jesus in many areas, but there's one specific area Paul's going to talk to us about today, that if we get wrong, well, we fall short of being the kinds of followers that God has crafted us to be. You and I can be great in evangelism, you and I can be great in discipleship, we can be... um, Uh, We can be very firm in the way we practice our spiritual disciplines, but if you and I, according to Paul, fail in the grace of giving, well, then we're just not quite the mature believers that the Lord wants us to be, and so... We are in the middle of a very short sermon series. We started last week. We will conclude it next week. And the title of this series is The Generous Life. We're talking about what it looks like to be the kinds of givers, not just financially but in every area of life, the kinds of givers that are motivated by God's grace, that are moved by the gospel and given away to honor God and exalt Jesus Christ. While this topic may certainly be uncomfortable Look, it's absolutely vital to our sanctification that we understand what's expected of us in relationship to our things as we follow Jesus Christ. And so if you were here last week, you'll recall I shared with you a couple of reasons why we're spending some time on this subject. One is because in about the next five months, we're going to ask the church on two different occasions— to pray about giving above and beyond your normal giving towards some goals we have. One in October is going to be giving to our missions budget, uh, the means by which we support our missionaries. The second is going to come in early 2018 when we begin to talk and pray uh, earnestly as a church about a capital campaign. And uh, we want to set our eyes on reducing or even eliminating our debt as the Lord gives us ability. Now, these sermons, these three sermons, are not a defense of those things. Our our focus is not primarily on missions, budget, and capital campaign. Our mission and focus over these three Sundays is simply our hearts. And so a second reason why we're studying this is because it's right. (laughs) We're followers of Jesus. He has a lot to say about how we handle our possessions. Jesus is not without instructions on stewardship. The New Testament is swimming with words to the church and followers of Jesus in regards to how we handle our possessions. And there are so many things we talk about in church that make us squirm a bit, topics where the Holy Spirit presses in conviction. We don't avoid uncomfortable subjects when they're clearly laid out in Scripture for us, and we can't do that here. And so I appreciate the maturity and the endurance with which you sit through these three Sundays because I think it's absolutely necessary that if we're going to be the church God has called us to be, each and every one of us, followers of Jesus Christ, must be generous in the way we live our lives. And so, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul gives us a vivid example of what mature Christian giving looks like. Here's the setting, since we're just parachuting into 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is the author of this letter, and it's a letter written to the church in the city of Corinth. And Paul is writing this letter from a region called Macedonia. Macedonia is, in the first century, it's what we would call northern Greece. It's close to but not the same as modern-day Macedonia. And there are several churches in first-century Macedonia in cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Paul most likely is writing this letter to Corinth from Philippi. And Paul has a tortured relationship with the Corinthian church. They're a hot mess, and I think they're a source of a lot of Paul's sleepless nights and personal struggles, just because they're so messed up so often. Paul vacillates between taking them to the woodshed and then speaking his love and his affection for them. He's visited the church multiple times, and he's written multiple times, all in an effort to fight false teaching and corruption in the church. And Paul's writing here in 2 Corinthians to address a few outstanding issues and also to let them know that he's going to be coming soon for another visit. He has a goal in mind when he comes for this next visit. His goal is to collect an offering from them. You see, the Christian church in Jerusalem, what some would call the mother church, has fallen on difficult days because of a famine. Famine. And Paul, part of his apostolic mission is to remember the poor. Galatians, the apostles make this clear to Paul that you're to speak the gospel to the Gentiles and don't forget the poor. And so this is part of his apostolic mission to care for these impoverished believers in Jerusalem. And Paul believes that if the Gentile churches will give in a healthy way to this cause, then it's going to act like a bridge uniting the Jewish Christian church and the Gentile Christian church. And so Paul plans on coming through Corinth and collecting an offering from them, just as he's done in all these other cities, and he's going to take it back to Jerusalem. So this letter is just a friendly heads up. He doesn't want to surprise him. Knock, knock, it's Paul, where's my money? That, he doesn't want to do that. He wants there to be no awkwardness, but to be willingness on the Corinthians part to take part in this special offering. Now, when Paul talks about giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, he is speaking about a specific type of giving. And that type of giving is what you and I would call disaster relief. Right? Jerusalem People are starving. There is famine in the land. This offering is to go to help meet their needs, to buy food, to provide for people who cannot provide for themselves. It is disaster relief giving. However, there are principles here in chapters 8 and 9 whose applications go beyond the narrow window of disaster relief. So it's my contention that the instructions in our passage today and then beyond our passage in these two chapters, uh, that these principles can be applied to every way in which you and I give towards kingdom work. So if we give to disaster relief, or if we give um, uh, of our time, or we give of our finances in another way, or we give of our giftedness and our resources, all of that is what I would call kingdom giving, every way in which we give to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, every way in which we give of our resources, time, energies, talents, everything we have, all that falls under the umbrella of kingdom giving. That's the term I'm going to be using today to describe all the ways that we give towards the mission of the church. And so Paul has an example for us to follow in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. And my goal today in preaching this passage is either to affirm you as someone who is already a kingdom giver or to persuade you to be a person who is generous towards kingdom work. To do that, I want to show you in our passage four characteristics of Christ honoring kingdom giving. I think if we see from the example Paul provides what this kingdom giving is like, you and I will be persuaded to follow in obedience and holiness with our stuff as well. Follow along with me as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of the most severe trial. And then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Paul continues on our small section is part of a much larger section. It'd be worth your time this week to spend uh, some moments reading and meditating on this. But this morning from these first seven verses, I want to show you four characteristics of Christ honoring kingdom giving. The first of those characteristics is this. Kingdom giving is the fruit of supernatural joy. It's the fruit of of supernatural joy. Verse 2, we're hit with this reality. Paul is providing an example for the Corinthian church. That's what he says in verse 1. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So that's churches, again, in cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. God's shown grace to them, and how has it been made manifest? Verse 2, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, if you and I, with a blank slate, were to draw up a profile of a generous church, a giving church, what sort of characteristics would we put on that profile? Well, we might, first of all, say, well, if the church is generous, it's probably a church of means they have stuff with which they can give we might also say if a church is generous it might be a church that's free not under any sort of attack but they have freedom and uh, and comfort with which to operate those are some things that you and i might look at but how does paul describe the macedonian churches in verse 2 first of all he says they were in a most severe trial These are churches under persecution. These are Christians for whom following Jesus is costly. Hebrews 11 has much to say about what life was like for these types of followers of Jesus Christ. It was not easy. It was not simple. Very complicated and costly to be a follower of Jesus. These churches in Macedonia were in the midst of a severe trial. Paul also says they lived in extreme poverty, So early Christianity, as modern day Christianity ought to be as well, with its emphasis on the gospel available to all people, meant that there was great socioeconomic diversity in the early church. The gospel spread not just among power structures, but especially among slaves, nobodies, anonymous people whose names are lost to history. And so the church, early church especially in Gentile regions, is made up of people who live in poverty, and it's quite possible that their allegiance to Jesus Christ limits their opportunities to work, limits their opportunities to function freely, and puts them in a place where they live in extreme poverty. Not just poverty, but according to Paul, extreme poverty. So they're experiencing trials, they were extremely poor, and according to verse 2, they overflowed with joy. We wouldn't expect that. Now, there's a lot of reasons why you and I would assume a church shouldn't concern itself with kingdom giving. We might assume that a church under persecution would get a pass. Or we might think that a church in extreme poverty might get a pass. I mean, if you and I were the leaders organizing this special offering for the starving church in Jerusalem, we might not even mention it to the Macedonian churches because the reality seems that they need their own special offering to care for them in their starvation, in their poverty, in their persecution. Here's the difference we see in the Macedonian churches. The Christ Who suffered makes a difference in a suffering people. These poor, suffering Christians overflowed with joy. Look, these Macedonian Christians know something about joy that we need to get deep in us. Christian joy is not circumstantial. My joy in the Lord does not depend on what I face this day the burdens I carry, the trials ahead of me, all the snares the enemy has laid for me, those things are real, they are difficult, they may cause tears, but we in Jesus Christ possess a supernatural joy that transcends our circumstances and is rooted in what God has done, past, present, and future for his church. So if I have a life of ease and a fat bank account, but I don't have Jesus. I don't have one thing to be joyful about in my life. Don't you dare envy the person who has a sweet car and an empty soul. They are to be pitied above all else. If I have nothing, if I don't know what I'm going to eat tonight, but I have Jesus Christ, brother and sister, I have everything everything in him i've got a reason to sing a song a reason to rejoice because i have a savior in him one who will not fail me in any way man we tend to use our tough circumstances as reasons to hit the eject button on god's mission but the macedonians show us a better way so did a friend of mine uh, a woman named jenny kufal uh, Jenny was married to my good friend Heath, and a few years ago, my wife Melissa and I attended her funeral. Jenny was 39 years old. She was a mother of seven kids, and she died of appendiceal cancer. And her husband Heath spoke at her service, and he read a couple of Jenny's journal entries as she walked this road. In one of those journal entries, Jenny said that she saw her cancer As a gift from God. It it was a gift because it made her face her own mortality daily. And it made her live intentionally for the sake of Jesus. With her husband. And with her kids. And with everyone else around her. Jenny's funeral was two hours of stories. About how she held out the message of life. While her body wasted away. And present at Jenny's funeral were nurses who came to faith in Jesus Christ because of her deathbed witness in her last hospital stay. She is sowing gospel seeds in people's hearts. Out of her most severe trial in extreme sickness, Jenny overflowed with joy and welled up in generosity with the gospel. So our participation in the advance of the kingdom transcends our circumstances. And I would say the harder our circumstances, the clearer our gospel witness. Paul expected this story to sway the comfortable Corinthians. It ought to sway us as well. Kingdom giving is the fruit of of supernatural joy. I give the gospel. I give a witness. I give a casserole. I give a dime. I do it all out of the overflow of my joy in the Lord. Second characteristic of kingdom giving. Kingdom giving is a sacrifice. Verse 3 spells this out very clearly for us. Kingdom giving is a sacrifice. Look at how Paul describes the Macedonian church's generosity In verse 3, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Now, again, the Macedonians could have used their poverty and their trials as an excuse to not give it all or to just give a, a small, small, small amount. But instead, they stunned Paul with their generosity. And their generosity is not seen in the amount they gave. It's not an amount issue. Their generosity is seen in the fact that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So what impresses Paul is not the amount of the gift, but the sacrifice required to give what they did. In the Macedonian church's gift to the Jerusalem church, we see a microcosm of how the kingdom of God expands. The gospel is proclaimed, new churches are planted, disaster relief is given only through the sacrifice of saints. The advance of the gospel does not come through political niceties or good intentions. We have an enemy, and we are at war for souls. And our enemy will not relinquish those souls easily. From Acts chapter 7 to this day, sacrifice is the soil in which the gospel grows. This church gave beyond their ability. And to be sure, anything that you and I do for the sake of the kingdom of God will be a work beyond our ability. If we share the gospel, we teach a class, we walk with our neighbors to the cross, whatever it is we do will be a work that is beyond our ability. God doesn't call us because we're the best of the best. He fills us, He indwells us because we need the power of the Holy Spirit to be gospel witnesses. Anything we do to advance the kingdom is going to be a work beyond our ability. You may recognize the name David Brainerd the 18th century missionary to Native Americans who died a very young man. He prayed this in one of his journals. Lord, let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. This church gave sacrificially beyond their ability in a way utterly disproportionate to who they were. They are afflicted and impoverished. They are to be pitied, and instead they stand boldly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they give generously out of their relationship with him. When we give sacrificially out of who we are and what we have, the kingdom of God advances. That's how the gospel goes forth. Missionaries do not spread the gospel in a life of comfort and ease it is through sacrifice your neighbors will not be one to the faith just through mere good intentions it will be through the sacrifice of your time reordering your life strategically walking with them towards the cross of Jesus Christ kingdom giving is a sacrifice we've said so far that kingdom giving is joyful kingdom giving is a sacrifice The third characteristic of kingdom giving, it is a willing gift. Kingdom giving is a willing gift. My language isn't good here. You may want to reword it. How do you say it's not by coercion? It's not through manipulation. However you want to word that, feel free to fill in the blank yourself. It is a willing gift. In verse 4, Paul continues his description of Macedonian generosity he says this starting at the end of verse 3 Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Now, it's important to Paul that the Corinthian church knows that the Macedonians gave of their own free will, not because Paul came in and manipulated the situation or guilted them into giving. It's important that the Corinthians know this is who the Macedonians are in Christ. As a default, they begged us, pleaded with us for the privilege of giving. Paul doesn't say we came in and dropped the burden on them. We didn't come in and say, well, maybe you're poor because you haven't given to this kingdom effort yet. They pleaded to give in this, and to share in this service to the saints. Why is it so bad for a kingdom gift of any kind to be given out of coercion or manipulation? Well, with all kingdom giving, motivation is most important. Again, the New Testament is dripping with this instruction that the heart with which we give is what God is vitally concerned with. I'll share a few examples with you. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In Luke chapter 21, we're told, As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Paul, in his previous letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Motivation is so important. According to Jesus in Matthew 23, if I give but I neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness, I am a hypocrite. According to Jesus in Luke 21, if I give but with a prideful, arrogant heart, it's as if I have given nothing. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give everything I have to the poor, but I don't have love, I've achieved nothing. Motivation matters in our giving. Now, wrong motivation in giving can sometimes be the fault of bad preaching false theology or just blatant coercion. I've sat under preaching before that used guilt and shame to manipulate church members into giving. That's, that's not what today is. Next week, we're going to take a broad look at what the Bible says about tithing. There'll be no coercion or manipulation on that day either. You have to walk with the Lord as, when it comes to the stewardship of your resources, there's a difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit in a matter and a preacher who's worried about paying bills and manipulating a scene or using threats to get you to do stuff. Praise God for the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not just when it comes to stewardship, but every area of our living that needs sanctification. It's bad when preachers have ripped apart the sheep through coercion and manipulation when it comes to this matter. It's an awful thing. But bad preaching also exists in the form of the prosperity gospel that lies to people and tells them that if you will give the televangelist your money, then God will multiply it back to you. In the prosperity gospel, do you know what the goal is for the giver? The goal for the giver is wealth accumulation. The goal is not the glory of God or the advance of the kingdom. The liar with the microphone tells you, if you give me your money, God will give you this much back. So I'd love it if we could just make a commitment in our hearts today that when it comes to our kingdom giving, we will draw a boundary when it comes to these types of false gospel prosperity preachers. They speak lies. Every part of their ministry is built on lies. You have no business in your stewardship giving one dime to those types of liars. We can pray for them and people under their sway. We must be wise with our stewardship. Wrong motivations, whether it's giving to get rich, whether it's giving to get God off our back, those things matter. When we give in a way that's wise and mature, we give willingly. We give freely. We don't give um, out of a sense of winning God to our side. We don't give out of a sense of getting more for ourselves. We give because we see the kingdom of God for what it is, that life that is worth everything we have. We'll know that we're giving in a way that honors the Lord when you and I give freely. Not out of manipulation, not out of coercion, not out of a way of trying to get God to come our way, but simply freely giving as an act of joy and worship to the Lord. So kingdom giving is joyful. Kingdom giving is a sacrifice. Kingdom giving is freely given, final characteristic Kingdom giving is an act of worship. In verses 5 through 7, Paul plays this out for us. Kingdom giving is an act of worship. Look at what Paul says in verse 5 as he continues to describe the gift from the Macedonian churches. He says, And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. There's an important order of events here in verse 5. They gave themselves, the churches in Macedonia gave themselves first to the Lord, and only after that did they give their gift to Paul. Now, Paul doesn't give us a lot of commentary here as to what exactly this looked like. Let me venture a guess. Feel free to take this guess and chuck it out the window if you'd like. Just a guess. I think Paul arrives in Macedonia, in that region, and he begins to meet with these Christian churches, and he finds them to be shockingly poor, with barely enough to live on. They are obviously undernourished people. They're not kind of poor. They are extremely poor. And in the midst of their conversations, Paul describes what the church in Jerusalem is suffering in their famine. When these impoverished believers in Macedonia hear how the church in Jerusalem is suffering, they turn to the Lord in worship and prayer. Paul says they gave themselves first to the Lord. I I, I don't think he's speaking in a salvation sense. I think he's speaking in a worship sense. These are already believers. They turn to the Lord in worship and in prayer and they commit themselves to the Lord anew in light of their Harsh treatment and their poverty. And from that act of commitment comes joyful, abundant, free will giving for the sake of the Jerusalem church. Paul says they gave themselves to the Lord. Again, not in a salvation sense, but in a worship sense. This is an act of worship in response to the abundant grace God has shown these believers through Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. The intention of Paul's instructions here for us is not that we would just buckle down and do it better, but that we would see the Lord. We would worship Him. And out of our experience of His grace, you and I would be people who give freely and abundantly towards the mission of the church. Christians give in a unique way because of our experience of God's grace. This is inescapable. We talked about it last week and it's worth repeating again today. We give freely because we have received so much from our Savior. Here's how salvation works. You and I are sinners. We are guilty as charged. Our sin has separated us from God God the Son, Jesus Christ, gave himself in order to defeat sin and death that plagues us. Our sin requires a death payment. There's no way around that. Someone has to pay the price for my sin. And you can't pay the price for my sin because you've got sin of your own. And it wouldn't be hard for me to find people who are better than me And and in this group to find people that are better than me, guess what? Even those who are better than me have sin of their own. And we could find people who are better than all of us, and those people have sin of their own. We need a perfect one to bear the penalty for our sin. And there's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh, And he came to us for this purpose, to die in our place. And at his death, as we sang just a little bit ago, at his death we are justified. He takes all of our sin, all the wrath of God for our sin on himself. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And the fact that he died and he lives makes him very God of very God. It verifies everything he said and promised to us. And anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him, he promises will be saved once and forevermore. So when you and I get close to our giving God, we become giving people as well. No one in Scripture who had a vision of God or an experience with Christ walked away stingier than when they came. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, stands in the throne room of God. When God says, whom shall I send, Isaiah didn't say, send me, but don't touch my checking account. He says, here I am, send me. Everything he has, he's in for the mission of God. That's the way it is for us in our interactions with the Father as well. When you and I experience God, when we worship him, when we see him in his might and holiness and love and grace, It changes us. You just, you cannot come into contact with the God of creation and walk away stingy and unchanged. He molds us into different kinds of people. And so Paul finishes this opening section with praise for the Corinthians and then a plea. Look at what he says in verse 6. He's giving a few details about what's to happen next. He says, we urged Titus. Titus is Paul's, delivery man. And he says we, we urged Titus, since he had earlier earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion the act of grace on your part. So what Paul has said in so many words is that Titus has brought back this report from you to me. This is a good report. I'm sending Titus back to you. Titus is going to carry this letter to the church at Corinth, I'm sending Titus back with this letter, and then he's going to help you get ready for my arrival, and for your gift towards the Jerusalem church. Right, he's going to bring to completion this act of grace on your part. Verse 7, here's the praise. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. So he's sending Titus with this letter, he's going to organize the Corinthian gift to the Jerusalem church, and in verse 7, he praises them for all these great characteristics, and then he pleads with them to excel in the grace of giving. It's not enough to have all these great characteristics, but to have this one ingredient left out. The grace of giving is something that ought to mark every Christian life, every church who carries the banner of Jesus Christ. This is the one ingredient the Corinthian church cannot do without. It's the one ingredient that the South Shore church cannot do without. We have to be a generous people who give freely, sacrificially, joyfully as an act of worship towards the advance of the kingdom of God. So what have we said this morning about kingdom giving from Paul's writing? We've said that kingdom giving is joyful. Kingdom giving is sacrificial. Kingdom giving is a willing gift, and it's also an act of worship. When you think about the kind of person you want to be with the Lord, don't those four characteristics sound appealing? Don't you want to be the kind of person who has joy that transcends every circumstance? Don't you want to be the kind of person who lives their life sacrificially for the sake of others in a manner that reflects Jesus Christ? Don't you want to live your life willingly obeying the Lord, willingly giving of yourself to others? And don't you want to live your life as an act of worship? All that comes together in this grace of kingdom giving. There's a story about King Charlemagne, who was a Turkish king in the ninth century. Uh, the legend says that he was a great military leader as well as a devout Catholic, and that prior to going to war, he insisted that all of his soldiers be baptized into the Catholic Church. But there was a problem there. He felt that if they belonged to the Lord, then they might hesitate in their fighting for his kingdom, for Charlemagne's kingdom. And So the story goes that he commanded his men to be baptized while holding their swords away from the water. That way, their souls belong to the Lord, but their swords belong to Charlemagne. And I'm afraid that's how too many of us have treated our possessions. All the good things the Lord has given us. My soul belongs to the Lord. I'm going to sing of heaven. I'm going to sing of glory. I'm going to rejoice in this coming of the king again. As long as you don't touch my time, my dollars, my stuff, my abilities, my talents, my gifts. Jesus, take care of my sin. I'll take care of my things. That's not what it's like to walk with Jesus Christ. It's a sad Christian life when we piecemeal it, when we decide what we'll give to Him and what we'll keep for ourselves. But the exemplary life, the one that Paul points to, the one in which we see the heart of Jesus Christ beating, is when Christians are living sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom of God. Could Paul use you as an example of kingdom giving to other believers. South Shore Baptist Church. Let's be the kind of believers who excel in the grace of giving. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, one of the sweetest verses that we carry with us is that you so loved the world that you gave. You gave your one and only Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We praise you, our giving God, the God who laid down his life. We praise you, God the Son, who gave everything for our salvation. I'm grateful that you change us when we walk with you and when we trust you. We go from worshiping the idols that are our little piles of money and possessions and instead we leverage these small things for kingdom purposes. Holy Spirit, lead us in the way of truth and holiness when it comes to the stewardship of our things. Give us a reputation in this community and the communities around us as a giving church. Not for the sake of our name, but so that your name would be honored and glorified. So that people would associate generosity with Jesus Christ as your word says it ought to be. We want to be your good, faithful witnesses. Help us in that. But Lord, first and foremost, let us begin by giving ourselves to you. For those in here that are not your followers, Lord, I pray that you would draw them close to this kind of authentic life, a life of full surrender, a life that counts the cost, a life that lives for the sake of the kingdom that is born again through faith. Would you draw these friends of ours close to you? Let this be a day of salvation when they experience your generous grace to them through Jesus Christ. And for my brothers and sisters in the faith, Lord, let us be settled on this matter that while we will, yes, be people of prayer and people of worship and people of the Word and people with a witness, we will, like our Savior, be generous, sacrificial in all of our giving. Let us care about this deeply while we have left it as a peripheral matter. Bring it to the forefront for the sake of the gospel, for our sanctification, In the glory of your name, amen.